You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello, welcome to The Investor Way with me, Sam Ball, my co-host, John McEwen. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing Hargreaves Lansdowne, Unilever, Rennie Shaw, Shell, BP and Pinterest. So, John, should I start us off with Hargreaves Lansdowne? Yeah, go for it. What were the results from Hargreaves Lansdowne? So, Hargreaves Lansdowne have reported their half-year results to 31 December 2020. Uh, For anyone who doesn't know, Hargreaves Lansdowne are the investment platform. In the highlights, they've given net new business of $3.2 Assets under administration are up 16% since 31 December 2019 to $120.6 1,496,000 active clients, which is an increase of 84,000 since 30 June 2020. Profit before tax increased by 10% to 188.4 million. That's up from 171.1 million in the first half of the 1920 year. Interim dividend, dividend up 6% to 11.9p per share. The CEO, Chris Hill, commented, I wish to thank my colleagues for their hard work throughout this incredibly difficult time. Their dedication has delivered a period of very strong growth with record new clients and increased market share against the backdrop of the pandemic and the political uncertainty of the US elections and Brexit. As our client numbers continue to grow, we are finding that younger people are taking a greater interest in investing for the future, with the average age of our clients continuing to fall. COVID-19 has underpinned the importance of financial resilience and Hargreaves Lansdowne is well-placed to support clients with their savings and investment needs across their lifetimes. So just for the comparatives to the first half of the 1920 year, so net new business was 3.24 billion and that's up 40% from 2.31 billion a year ago. Total assets under management, 120.6 billion, and that's up 15% from 105.2 billion a year ago. Revenue, 299.5 million. That's up 16% from 257.9 million a year ago. Profit before tax, 188.4 million, and that's up 10% from 171.1 million a year ago. Earnings per share, 32.1p a share, and that's up 10% from 29.3p a share a year ago. I'll just pull out a few paragraphs of interest from the CEO's report. The first one is in the section growth in challenging market conditions. Investor confidence fluctuated over the period under the influence of the broad uncertainty of markets, falling over the summer but picking up into Q2 and on through to December post the US election and positive news of the COVID-19 vaccine. These trends have led to strong equity trading volumes up 123% on prior year, driving strong growth in profit before tax, where we've delivered an increase of 10% on the prior year. In the market dynamics section, he said, he's talking about the change in consumer behaviour, and he said, this change in behaviour is leading to a dynamic shift in the broader investment and wealth market. Younger people are taking a greater interest in investing for the future, recording an increased appetite for investment and prioritising financial resilience and saving. In 2012, 46% of clients were aged between 55 and 80, That proportion is now 34%. Since 2012, we've seen the average age of new clients decrease from 45 to 37. This was reflected in the first half of this year where 47% of clients joining were in the 30 to 54 age bracket. 
clients in this segment have money, are engaging with saving for the future and want to help put their money to work. By getting clients onto the platform earlier, we are able to support them for longer as they grow their wealth over time. And this enhances the lifetime value opportunity. We can see that clients, including the recent cohorts we have welcomed during the pandemic, follow consistent growth patterns as they continue to save and invest and make use of their and their household's allowances over time. Therefore, by building a relationship with a client over a lifetime, those who are currently in the 35 to 44 age group, when they come to represent tomorrow's over 65s, will have an average ISA portfolio that is almost three times as large as what we have today. In the client engagement section, you said we focus on understanding and delivering what our clients want and ensuring that we have the distribution, particularly through digital channels, how to get it in front of them in the simple and easy to use ways that they value most. Over the first half, our mobile app has seen 57% growth in clients logging in compared to prior year. Checking their investments on average 10 times a week, we have supported 6.5 million equity trades, 113 million client logins, and 25 million minutes spent reading our insightful articles. We offer a diversified and extensive service that clients rely on, and we are here for them when they need. Answering 676,000 calls, responding to 275,000 emails, and seeing over 153 million digital visits in the first half. All this engagement helps to provide the proposition, service, and insight that clients need and underpins a strong and differentiated relationship we build with them. This understanding also helps us to ensure that we continue to maintain a market-leading client experience for all of our clients no matter what their demographic or need, and enables us to maintain consistently high client retention around 93%. In the developing client experience section, he said, meanwhile, we continue to evolve our active savings service, which continues to play a vital role in the savings market where the rate clients can achieve are so important. Active savings had a record half, generating 700 million net new business to reach assets under management of 2.9 billion. Despite our expectation of subdued flows due to the market-leading NS&I rates on offer over the summer, we saw strong performance over the second quarter when rate deductions were announced in late September. At the end of December, we launched our new cash ISA, which should help drive continued momentum over the second half. We look forward to seeing how our clients use this new product to help them diversify their savings in 2021. They also gave a breakdown of the revenue. They've split it out between recurring and transactional revenue. So of the 299.5 million, recurring revenue was 193.8 million and tr transactional revenue was 105.7 million. The recurring revenue of 193.8 is down from 209.9 a year ago and the transactional of 105.7 is up from 43.2 million a year ago. And they've said the group's revenues are largely recurring in nature as shown. The proportion of recurring revenues has decreased to 65% in the period from 81% in the first half of last year, as the transactional stockbroking commission increased significantly versus last year. Recurring revenue is primarily comprised of platform fees on funds and equities, Hargreaves Lansdowne fund management fees, interest on client money and ongoing advisory fees. This fell by 8% to 193.8 million, driven by lower interest rates earned on, earned on client money, which more than offset the higher platform fees and management fees from higher average assets under administration levels. Recurring revenues provide greater profit resilience and hence we believe they're of higher quality than non-recurring revenues. In terms of the valuation of the business, it's currently trading at a market cap of 7.72, which puts it at a PE ratio of around 27. They're very impressive numbers. Yeah, that's what I thought. And 
priced earnings 27 it's not it's not that expensive for and for the quality of the business too i think one of the things that they said and uh, that you picked up on was that they were sort of appealing to younger investors as well and i think that model where they're sort of they've got quite a quality reputation and older people with perhaps larger portfolios are quite confident using them but that the fact that they've got good apps and that they're also drawing in that sort of the younger market that might you know have been more tempted towards you know your trading two on two robin hood type apps they're also coming to hargreaves lansdowne and likely if they're having a good experience of course are going to continue that through their life i mean i think that's is very attractive for the the future of the business as well yeah i agree i thought i thought num so i am biased because i'm a shareholder but I'm also a happy user as well, actually. But I thought the numbers <laughs> okay. the numbers were extremely impressive. Yeah. I think I agree with you that the, the PE ratio is very reasonable given given how all those numbers are moving in the right direction, or virtually all of them. I guess the makeup of mm. the revenue, you'd want higher recurring fees, but it's not something yeah. particularly concerning. Because I suppose this year, or well, in 2020, we had a lot of volatility. So for, for some of those non-recurring revenues, I suppose they've really benefited from that as a year and the changes in the market. What do you think about the recurring revenues? Do you think they're going to be sustainable? Well, I think so. So they, they did say that the decrease was driven by the lower interest rates that they've earned on client money. And there's not a huge amount they can really do about that. So that that, that will ebb and flow slightly, but it, it does look like everything is moving in the right direction. And despite the drop in recurring revenue, I mean, the transactional revenue more than doubled, and mm. I, I, I would expect a decrease in that next year. But mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not concerned about the recurring revenue because it's, mm. it's dropped for a reason that's completely out of their control. What do you think? Because there's quite a lot of competition, and there's AJ Bell, which is sort of a, a smaller competitor to Hargreaves, but you've also got you do have those sort of uh, disruptors like trading 212 coming through. And I appreciate that they may be aimed at different ends of the market and at different people. But that's sort of the idea of the fee-free trading coming in. Do you think that threatens those margins that or for, for recurring revenue that Hargreaves charge at the moment? Not really. I, th- I think they've. there are some customers that are obviously affected by price but i think generally it's a very sticky product and the 93 percent mm-hmm. retention shows that it depends I, I guess if you're a trader then yeah you want to be where the fees are lowest but if you're investing yeah. are, you, are you bothered about saving a tiny bit it's, for me i know i can save more on trading two on two but i like the platform it's easy to use it, i wouldn't go and i have been through the hassle of moving stuff on to hargreaves lansdowne so there's no way if i'm happy with the platform that i'd go to the hassle of moving it off now as long yeah. as they don't take the myth, I am there to stay, really. It was only in the last couple of years they hit a million active clients, and that's now already up to 1,496,000. Again, the assets mm. under management, it's only in the last, what is it, year, 18 months, they hit 100 billion. It's already at 120 mm. billion. Yeah. Despite the amount of competition, everything yeah. is moving in the right direction, and yeah. they are the market leader. So I think, I, I, I don't know, may, maybe some of the smaller ones... Well, we know we looked at we looked at AJ Bell recently, and I think their growth was slightly higher. But I wouldn't choose any of those over the market leader. No, I mean, quite honestly, those queries aside, I, I really like it, and I think I don't own it at the moment, but I would be interested in buying some shares. And as well, if you look at the financials over the past five years, 
So in the past, so from the 2016 year to the 2020 year, revenue increased from 388 million to 550 million, and earnings per share increased by 37p a share to 66p a share. And that is still continuing. And in that time period, shares are only up 29%. I think it's very reasonably priced and I think it is a great business. Yeah. But I am biased, like I said. No, no, no. No. Okay. What's the next company on our list? Do you want to do Unilever next? Okay. We can do Unilever. So Unilever, it's, I mean, we've talked about it quite a lot on the show before, but it's the consumer goods giant. It's one of the biggest companies in the FTSE 100. It has brands from PG Tips to Dove Soaps, Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream. So a lot of products that you have in your house are probably from Unilever. And I think, what's the stats, Sam? You mentioned it to me a couple of weeks ago. Is it a third of the world's population use a Unilever product every day or have one in their house? It's 2.5 billion people. I don't know how yeah. many people we're at at the minute. Are we at seven or eight? <laughs> it's a lot of people yeah. using Unilever products. So anyway, the news from Unilever, slight, it disappointed the markets. Full year results. Uh, yeah, sorry, full year results. So underlying sales growth of 1.9% with 1.6% volume and 0.3% price. Turnover decreased by 2.4%, primarily driven by negative impact of 5.4% from the currency-related items. Underlying operating profit decreased 5.8%, but increased by 0.7% at constant exchange rates. Underlying earnings per share decreased 2.4% but increased 4.1% at current exchange rates and then diluted earnings per share of 2.12 euros, free cash flow up to 1.5 billion to 7.7 billion. And then the dividend was maintained through the year and increased in the fourth quarter by 4% to 0.42 per share. And also the group are unifying in terms of a single structure. They've previously been dual listed in the Netherlands and in London. Now they're going for a London-only listing, which they've said will help with acquisitions. Alan Joke, the chief executive, said, in a volatile and unpredictable year, we've demonstrated Unilever's resilience and agility through the COVID-19 pandemic. I would like to thank the Unilever team, whose dedication and hard work has delivered a strong set of results under the most difficult of circumstances. Early in the year, we focused the business on competitive growth and the delivery of profit and cash as the best way to maximise value. We have delivered a step change in operational excellence through our focus on fundamentals of growth. As a result, we are winning market share over 60% of our business in the last quarter on the basis of measurable markets. The business also generated underlying operating profit of 9.4 billion euros and free cash flow of 7.7 billion, an increase of 1.5 billion euros. We progressed our strategic agenda, building on existing sustainability commitments with ambitious new targets and actions, most recently with our plans to help build a more equitable and inclusive society. We completed our unification of our legal structure under a single parent company, and we continue to work on separating out the tea business as we evolve our portfolio. Today, we are setting out our plans to drive long-term growth through the strategic choices we are making and outlining our multi-year financial framework. While volatility and unpredictability will continue through 2021, we begin the year in good shape and are confident our ability to adapt and rap- to rapidly changing environments. Disappointed the analysts because it, the growth was less than had been expected. What was your take on these results, Sam? 
I, I agree. I, I thought it was quite disappointing. I think, although they talk about the challenges they faced during the year, I think really they've probably been one of the beneficiaries of lockdown. I'd have thought you'd have expected more people staying at home, buying Unilever products, especially all the home care and cleaning stuff. Yeah, I, I probably. I don't know what I expected. Maybe somewhere from mid to high single digit revenue growth, I think would have been sort of mm-hmm. what I'd have thought was quite good. So yeah, I, I thought they were disappointing, but I'd also say that the business is maybe looking a bit more attractively priced as a result. Yeah, I suppose my, my thoughts were similar. In terms of Unilever's portfolio, it's perhaps not as defensive towards lockdown as Reckitt's is. I mean, we looked at Reckitt a couple of months ago and that, I mean, that's what that, you've got Dettol in the portfolio there and less in terms of what people might, you know, the, the food products that people might buy, like, you know, your Magnums and your Ben and Jerry's in comparison with Unilever. But no, overall, I'd say, yeah, it was a bit disappointing, but it's not looking an expensive business now for the quality that you've got there. Yeah, I agree. It's a nine, I think a nine month low, shares are trading at about £40. It's now trading at a price to earnings ratio of 19.2 and that compares to a 10 year average of 18.8. So it's basically in line with the 10 year average and it's got a prospective dividend yield over the next 12 months of three and a half percent, which I know the growth's been a bit disappointing, but I think the quality of that business is quite reasonable. Yeah, no, I, I would, I would tend to tend to agree with you there. The margins are over 18%, which obviously shows how good the brands are, doesn't it? And it's been been consistently in the high teens or uh, low 20s for at least the last five years, and I'd expect that to continue. What do you think of them selling their tea business? It's a good question. I don't know enough about it, quite honestly. I think the tea business is in the low single-digit growth. They announced a strategic review of the business in January. So they've obviously decided to sell following that. I mean, they, they offloaded Flora a couple of years ago as well. And that was, I think, on the basis that, again, limited growth and that people were generally consuming, you know, more health conscious, consuming fewer carbs and therefore sort of using products like uh, margarines less. Shrinking business, isn't it? Spre- spreads. It's yeah, that, that that's it. That's it. I don't know whether it's it is or not. It's, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. They did buy. I think they did buy um, some more premium tea brands like Pucker, rather than the, the sort of really sort of you know daily staples like PG Tips, which I assume must have a bigger margin on them. But I I'd have to uh, have to check that. I suppose one of the other thing exciting things about Unilever is that they've got a large exposure to the emerging markets. And it's the potential for growth there, which mm. could really lift revenues for Unilever. It's a bit of a spoiler alert, but um, we recorded the interview with Flosser this week. It won't be going out till next month, but we did actually talk about it. And he wasn't a fan of them selling the tea business. Oh, really? Oh, no, interesting. He didn't like it. If you want to find out why he didn't like it, you have to listen to the interview when it's released next month. Right, so should we move on to our next company then? Yep, so what's next on the list? So should we do Renishaw next? Okay, do you want to go for that, Sam? So Renishaw have released their half-year results to 31 December 2020. For anyone who doesn't know, 
Renishaw of the Global High Precision Metrology and Healthcare Technology Group. And metrology is the scientific study of measurement, for anyone who doesn't know. The results, they were actually quite good, but I had a few issues with them. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> tell us. If the main issue was just the way it was all presented. I didn't, I didn't feel like it was presented in an easy to understand way. So for example, they gave you results and they gave you last year's and they didn't actually tell you the percentage change, which is quite unusual. And I don't know why you do that because you're just making it more difficult. For the six months to 31 December 2020, they had revenues of 255 million and that was down from 259 million a year ago. Statutory earnings per share was 72p and that was up from 10p a year ago. However, the adjusted earnings per share were 49p and that was up from 15p a year ago. The dividend is now up to 14p a share and they had actually stopped dividend payments due to the pandemic. And profit before tax is 63.9 million, and that's up from 9.9 million a year ago. So they've said they saw significant improvements in profitability in the first half as the benefits of their fit for the future strategy continued to be felt. They highlighted their robust balance sheet with net cash and bank deposit balances of 186 million compared to 120 million at June 2020. For the metrology side of the business, they've said revenue in our metrology business for the first six months was 235.6 million compared to 241.5 million last year. Adjusted operating profit was 41.2 million compared to 17.4 million for the comparable period last year. We've seen growth in demands for many of our metrology products, notably in our machine tool production line and optical and laser encoder product lines. The latter have seen good growth due to a continuing recovery in the semiconductor and electronics capital equipment market. We've experienced reduced demand for our CMM product line due to the challenges in some sectors, particularly aerospace. But our strong portfolio of measurement products and global customer base means that we are well placed to benefit from a recovery in sector investment. Our additive manufacturing product line revenue was also lower than the same period last year, but was in line with our expectations following the restructuring of the business that was implemented in 1920. For the healthcare side of the business, it said revenue from our healthcare business for the first six months was 19.5 million compared to 17.8 million last year. The adjusted operating profit was 2.2 million compared to a 1.5 million pound loss last year. We've seen growth in our neurology product line and good growth in our spectroscopy, spectroscopy product line, which has seen a recovery in Raman spectrometer investment across all our regions plus increasing adoption of the Versa Raman Analyzer, which was launched in 1920. We are also seeing that those surgeries and procedures that were delayed due to the pandemic have started to be rescheduled. In terms of their productivity and operating costs, they said our fit for the future strategy, which commenced in 1920, has resulted in a number of actions which improved productivity and reduced the group's cost base. This included a resizing of the business, a restructure of our AM product line, and a focus on prioritizing design projects to accelerate the market launch of significant products. We're currently recruiting production staff to ensure that we have sufficient capacity to meet demand. Labor costs were 109 million in the first half compared to 119 million last year, and the average headcount in the first half was 4,371 compared to 4,990 last year. For the balance sheet, they said capital expenditure for the first half was 4.8 million and that compared to 28.4 million a year ago. This was primarily on plant and equipment, supporting manufacturing processes and IT infrastructure. 
The lowest spend this year was in line with their expectations following significant infrastructure investment in recent years. And like I mentioned earlier, they've recommenced their dividend. Overall, they seemed like pretty, pretty good results, but I didn't like the lack of comparatives. I thought the results themselves were quite difficult to navigate. And there was no CEO statement, which I didn't think was particularly. I just didn't think it was very shareholder friendly, really. I just thought it was quite lazy, mm. which is strange because they'd made it quite hard to dig into. But they were, apart from the drop in revenue, they seemed like quite decent results. So yeah, I thought, I thought it was just a bit odd. In terms of the business, I think it's quite hard to understand. Mm, I don't, I don't yeah, really, yeah. I don't really have any way of differentiating what their competitive advantage would be or how they differentiate from their competitors at all. I don't really understand the industry. So for me, and the way they've presented the information doesn't help either. But for me, it would just go into the too hard pile. In terms of the valuation of the business. The business is valued at 4.48 billion and the share price is 61 pounds a share. The, the operating profit seem to have been sort of fluctuating a fair bit over the last five years. 2015, 144 million dropped to 61.2 million, 2016, 27 up to 117 million then 153 million in 2018 and then down to 99.8 in 2019 and then you've sort of talked about 2020 revenue just seems to be trending upwards but it's not it's not amazing i mean it's grown about what like 25 percent in five years but it, it peaked in 2018 at 600 million and it's it came down to 500 million in 2020. if you use the 2019 earnings and treat that was normalized earnings they were fairly consistent prior to the pandemic that give it a normalised P ratio of 51, which for the, the growth seems quite expensive. I don't, mm. but but it, it's, I mean, part of it is that it's going into the too hard pile anyway, but there, there could easily be something about that business that I'm just not, I'm not getting. Yeah, yeah. I think I, think I need to really dig into like the products and how they're differentiated because there, there must be a reason why people are paying up for it. The revenue is divided between China, US and Japan. 43.3 million from China in 2020, 52.7 million from US in 2020, Japan accounted for 30.6 million in 2020, and Germany 27.2 million in 2020. So it is a global business. Yeah, very much. I don't know what the UK counted for. So what's your verdict on Renishaw then, John? Uh, again, I wouldn't pretend to understand this business, so yeah. at the moment it's absolutely in the too hard pile. I think it'd be interesting to dig down into it a bit more. And But yeah, at the moment, I wouldn't be in a position where I could invest in it. That was my thoughts. The results seemed fairly decent, but then the PE ratio suggests there must be more to the business. Than, yeah. Because than, it is expensive based on those results. So I, I think really, to, I think to get an idea of why it's priced like that, I'd need to dig into the products and yeah. product lines. That's, that's, that's yeah, 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 yeah. where you find the answer. They don't look I, like the easiest products to understand either <laughs> from glancing at the results probably aren't spectacular enough, spectacular enough that I'm going to put the time into learning about the products. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. But at least we know okay. what metrology is. We do. You um, might have already known. But. Well, <laughs> I, I wasn't going to interrupt you. Remaining companies, we've got the oil super majors. So we've got Shell, which is the UK's largest listed oil company, and BP. They 
both released their fourth quarter results for 2020. So we'll start with Shell. So it was a bigger loss. Well, both were bigger losses uh, than the city were expecting. Shell's loss was 21.7 billion in 2020 and 19.9 billion when the charges in the valuation of inventory are taken out. And that compares with a 15.3 billion dollar profit from 2019. So similarly to BP, Shell was hit by the collapse in the price of oil, and that was the sort of toxic combination that you had earlier in 2020 with the gluts coinciding with the pandemic and the reduced demand. The prices dropped of Brent crude down to into the 20s, and this resulted in a loss of almost 17 billion of impairment charges in the second quarter of 2020 when they cut their oil price outlook, followed by a further 3.8 billion of impairments in the fourth quarter. Excluding such one-off charges, Shell's adjusted earnings came in at a lowly 393 million in the fourth quarter, a reduction of 87% in comparison with 2019, and lower than the 595 million that analysts were expecting. Despite this, Shell reaffirm their commitment to their their new progressive dividend policy, saying we expect to grow our US dollar dividend by around 4% as of the first first quarter of 2021. That lifted shares a little bit, about 1% in early trading. And it was only last year, for reference, that Shell cut their dividend by two thirds, which was the first time that Shell had cut their dividend since the Second World War. And interestingly, they said that they would be revealing their strategy for the low carbon energy future at some point next week. And they announced that they'd be cutting jobs by about 9,000. And they've got a workforce in the sort of region of 80,000. So it's about a 10% cut just over. In terms of the oil price now, I mean, compared with earlier in the year, earlier last year, when we were down to the sort of into the 20s, we're now about $58 a barrel, which compared with a year ago before COVID hit, we we're about 65. So that's definitely improved. And Shell did, you know, highlight that oil demand was recovering parts of the world, such as China, but was still about five to 7% below 2019 levels, and would remain muted um, until the aviation sector recovered. And they said, we believe that in the second half of this year, we'll see a strong recovery and the chief executive believes that 2022 is going to be, be sort of back to normal. BP, so again, similar story. The loss was nearly as big, but not quite. It was 18.1 billion. And that was, again, worse than analysts were expecting in the fourth quarter, underlying profits down by 96% to $115 million. And that was short of the 370 million that had been predicted. And compared with over $9 billion profit in 2019. BP similarly cutting about 10,000 jobs. They have a slightly smaller workforce, I think about 70,000. So it's a slightly bigger job cut there. And they both got the headwinds of the new President Biden's policies, which he's you know, committed to tackling climate change and signed an executive order to stop issuing new oil and gas leases on public lands and offshore waters while carrying out a review of federal oil and gas, uh, the, the federal oil and gas program. 
federal waters include the Gulf of Mexico, which accounts for about 14% of BP's production. Likewise, it would also impact on Shell. So it's, um, it's been a tough time for both, both groups. And I suppose the, the results really reflect that. Do you have any thoughts on, well, the results and the future of these oil super majors? So we actually covered the Q3 results for Shell and they were pretty bad as well. So I, I, I can't say I'm particularly surprised by these results. So last time when we looked at Q3, as you said, it, it slashed the dividend by two thirds and the revenue was half of what it was in the prior year, but they were back into a profit in Q3. So I guess you, you could say it's continued to improve. One thing that's quite interesting when looking at the two is that Shell needs about $60 a barrel for oil to be profitable in the long term, whereas BP only needs $42 a barrel. In addition, they're both trading at a price to earnings of around 12. Shell has a prospective dividend yield over the next 12 months of 3.7% compared to 5.8% for BP. I, I don't particularly like either of them, but I think, as you mentioned, given the headwinds facing the industry, I think a price earnings of 12 and a dividend yield of 3.7% would actually be quite low for a company like Shell. I'd, I'd probably want more. And that's partly on the back. It's not really their fault. It's partly on the back that the shares are up a fair bit from when we last looked at it. They, they are. I mean, we were, we were quite negative the last time that we looked at it. That's pretty much at the bottom, wasn't it? That, yes, that's right. So within sort of a couple of months of us reporting it, the shares are up about 60%. They've come back a bit since then. But I think we were talking about it when it was sort of under £9 a share. It's now about 12 to 13 And we, ha- we did sort of peak at about 14 uh, over, oh, sorry, earlier in January. It's not really their fault because it was... I don't think we're particularly, like you say, we weren't particularly bullish on it last time. And then the share price has gone up by 60%. So where it might have looked fairly cheap, it, it to me still looks quite expensive. I think, you know, if, if you're buying a company like Shell, it's probably more of an income play. So given the amount of headwinds, I'd want a dividend yield of more than 3.7%, given the alternatives that are available. I think with BP, the, the dividend yield's better at 5.8%, but I don't know whether or not they can actually afford it. That's the problem. Yeah, I mean, I think that was Shell's decision. Well, both of them decided to cut the dividend. I think initially with COVID, BP held out for a bit longer and said they'd still pay it. But Shell decided to make that strategic decision and pay down debt and get get it in line with it. Well, adopt a progressive dividend strategy. What's changed since we reported Q3? Well, I suppose the big thing is that we've had the vaccine coming online and there's the research from that looking very positive. So a return to normal, not necessarily for Shell, but for global energy demand is certainly looking much more likely. So in turn, you would have thought that that would, going back to aviation, for example, that would really benefit Shell. It doesn't necessarily help, clear, well, it does help in some parts sort of clear the glut, but it certainly increases the demand for oil. Which of the two do you prefer? I suppose BP perhaps looks better value at the moment. I actually own Shell. I've, I've I would prefer BP as well. Yeah, 
I just um, think, so for me, first of all, the dividend's better, even if that question were wrong, I can pay it. But then as well, $42 a barrel for profit for break even compared to 60 for Shell, for me, that made it a bit of a no-brainer between the two, especially when they're at the same PE. Yeah, but it's not to say that Shell couldn't get that down. And also, I suppose it would depend on oil price as well. But when they're priced the same, why would you want? Why would you give Shell the chance to get it down? I don't get why you wouldn't just buy BP. I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> right. So, should we move on to our final company? Yes. So, what is our final? Pinterest. Pinterest. Yes. Uh, if you're familiar with Pinterest at all. Not really. I know it's a US tech company that you can what snapshot bits of interior design. Is that no? In a nutshell, yeah, I guess. So it's, it's, it's actually a social media company, but you go on and I don't actually use it. It's, it most of the users are actually women, but you go on and it, you're basically just looking for like shopping or design ideas and you create these, um, these boards where you pin ideas. So if you're looking to travel, you just pin different ideas. So you'd scroll down different if you're looking for like travel ideas or like recipe ideas, but What's really good is firstly, it's all visual, but secondly, a lot of the stuff that people do on there tends to be because they're looking to buy something or spend some money. So it lends itself really well to advertising because generally when people go onto Pinterest, they are they are wanting to buy something. So they actually want to see the ads and because it's all visual, the ads fit in perfectly because you can just present it as another image, basically. Okay. So as, a, as an example of like how powerful the platform is, actually, Etsy, 40% of their traffic comes from people on Pinterest. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is impressive. Right. So anyway, they've reported their Q4 results and their full year results for 2020. So the highlights were Q4 revenue growth of 76% year over year, 706 million the quarter and 2020 revenue growth for the full year was at 48% to 1.693 billion. Global monthly active users grew 37% year over year to 459 million. Gap net income was 208 million and that compared to 128 million loss for the Q4 last year and adjusted earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortization which isn't my favourite metric, but it's what they've given as a highlight. Um, Charlie Munger actually calls EBITDA bullshit earnings. Okay. <laughs> so I, I tried to think what he called adjusted EBITDA. <laughs> but anyway, that was 299 million for Q4 and 305 million for 2020 as a whole. Ben Silberman, CEO and co-founder, said, we welcomed over 100 million additional monthly active users to Pinterest in 2020, more than any other year in our history. And now we reach more than 450 million monthly active users around the world. I'm proud of our company and the inspiration we've been able to bring to so many lives during a trying year. As we look to the future, our focus will continue to be delivering more inspiring and shoppable content and helping advertisers realize that the value and positivity of our platform. So that's, that's actually another thing that they've got going for them as a social media company because of the nature of the platform. You don't get any trolling or hate or anything because it's, it's just not built like that. You can't, there's not really a way to do it. And then the CFO, Todd Morgan, Todd Morgan said, 
Q4 captured a remarkable year of growth for Pinterest. Continued product innovation, execution, and an earlier and longer holiday season helped us deliver 76% year-over-year revenue growth. As we start 2021, we'll be building on this momentum by continuing to invest in the success of our advertisers, as well as a first-class pinner experience around the globe. So, as mentioned, for the quarter, revenue was up 76%. For the year, it was up 48%. Net income for the quarter was up 682%. And that was from a 35 million loss to a 207 million profit. And for the year, it was up 91% from a 1.3 billion loss to 128 million loss. Although I think that 1.3 billion loss last year was quite artificial because it included a lot of um, stock, stock options and stuff when they initially IPO'd from memory. Non-GAAP net income was up 283% for the quarter and 1,482% for the year. But again, this the same point applies. The adjusted EBITDA margin was up from 19 to 42% for the quarter and 1% to 18% for the year. They also gave a split of their revenue. They've got 459 million monthly active users. 98 million of those are in the US and 361 million are international. So for the year, the in total monthly active users grew 37%. That was made up of 11% US growth and 46% international growth. However, average revenue per user for the quarter was $1.57 per user, and it was $4.26 for the full year per user. And that's up 12% from $3.81 in the prior year. However, of that $4.26, the average revenue per US user is $15.34, which grew 27% year over year. Average revenue per international user was just 88 cents and that grew 62% year over year. So if they could, if they can get that average revenue per international user up in line with the US, I don't think it would ever be equal to the US just because they've got more to spend. But considering that includes the whole of Europe, even if they could get it to half that level, that'd be 7x the revenue from international users. And I think that's what, what's quite exciting about it. The international users are massively under monetized. In terms of the revenue for the U the actual revenue for the US users, that was up 39% year over year in dollar terms. And for international users, that was up 129% year over year. And they've said their current expectations for Q1 2021 are that they will continue, is that they will grow in the low 70% range year over year. In terms of the valuation, it isn't cheap. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what we're waiting for. So there's price to earnings is pretty useless really because of where it is in its growth cycle. But if we use the red price to sales, that's probably quite reasonable. So revenue for the 2020 year was 1.692 billion and it's got a market cap of 51 and a half billion. So that puts it at a price to sales. 30 which is expensive <laughs> the gross margins for the full year they were 73 percent, and that was up from 69 percent a year ago and for q4 they were 81 percent, and that was up from 76 percent a year ago so it is very high margin the growth is there and the international users are massively under monetized 
if they can continue to grow at the current rates and they can and they can successfully monetize international users, I think that would then eventually once it gets to a scale, that would be an extremely profitable business. And if it is monetizing those users properly, you can see why people are paying up for it, I think. However, I, I am biased because I'm a shareholder. So, John, what are your unbiased thoughts on Pinterest? Um, I mean, it, they are very, very impressive numbers, but it doesn't come cheap. And I suppose if any of their future trading statements results disappoint, there's a long way to fall. So you'd definitely be expecting volatility if you're going in and buying these shares. Speculative, though, it's all, well, maybe that's a bit, bit harsh, but... Um, it's priced to perfection. Yeah, <laughs> yes. So I, sp- I suppose to, to some degree it is. Everything has to go right for the business for you to to do well out of it. But what I, what I think you can see how they get there though, just with the yeah, users yeah. they've already got. Yeah. No, I, I I take I take your point. Probably not for me, but I could I could see why some people would be able to justify it. I mean, when I bought it, the price sorry, the price sales is thirty now. When I bought it, the price of sales was only about twelve. Oh wow! Okay, so it's, so it's had a, it's had a, it's grown impressively since I bought it, but it's also had a significant revaluation by the market in the last year. Yeah, but the yeah. the growth has accelerated as well, though. So that, that is what partly why people are willing to pay up for it. So I don't I don't know. I, I think it's would a you quality. buy it at the current prices? I I think an argument can be made. <laughs> I, I don't think I'd be comfortable paying 30 times sales. Okay. Um, Fine. I'm just pleased I've already got it, so I don't need to make that decision. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I, mean, I do really like the business. And I, I, I think it's a lot easier to hold it than it would be to buy it. Yeah. And it's one that will be exciting to follow as well. So of the six companies that we've talked about today, Hargreaves Lansdowne, Unilever, Renishaw, Royal Dutch Shell, BP, and Pinterest. If you had to buy one, which one would it be and why? I would probably go, I'd probably go for Hargreaves Lansdowne as a new investment. I think it's great quality business and it looks like it really has the potential to continue its growth. And it's not that expensive for the growth that it looks like it's going to be delivering going forward. If you didn't own Unilever, would that change the answer? It's a good question. I'd probably be a bit more torn because at the moment with the price of Unilever, I'd be looking to top it up maybe. But if I didn't have any Unilever shares, then I'd possibly be looking to start a position in Unilever. It depends what my portfolio looked like, quite honestly. I think that would be, I think if I didn't have any stocks, Unilever might be that first one that I'd go to. Yeah. What about you? I'd go for Hargreaves Lansdowne, actually. Out of the all of them? Out of all of them, yeah. I, I thought that. It's just, it's just valuation. I just think it's a very good business with very good results, at a very reasonable price. Whereas, take Pinterest as an example, it's a very good business with very good results, but you really have to pay up for it in a way where you, are, I don't think you do have to pay up for it with Hargreaves Lansdowne. Sure, sure. No, I think that's, I think that's fair. Right. So, I think that's everything then, isn't it? I think that's everything. Right, see you so, next time. See you next week. Thank you for listening to The Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. 
Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.